There's so much available to us if we just kind of tap into that part of the brain. Welcome to the Primer Blueprint Podcast that recognizes when from our studios in Malibu, California, when we're overtired, overtrained, but also takes advantage of those times when we are ready to go. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast with Mark Sisson. I'm your host, Brad Kearns, and we are so happy to be back in the groove here, Mark, after a nice string of Q&A podcasts. I thought we would do something a little different today. What do you think? Well, it depends on what you have in mind, Brad. <laughs> well, there's some interesting, uh, some interesting items along the lines of human peak performance and fitness potential and I thought we would uh, get into some of those things, especially with your interesting background, which maybe some people aren't aware of, that you had a, a huge role in the sport of triathlon relating to doping and performance-enhancing drugs, which is a hot topic these days in sports. Um, and also our, um, our respected friend Timothy Noakes in South Africa, who's probably the world's leading exercise physiologist, and he's advanced something called the central governor theory, which I think you can give some interesting commentary about. Uh, but also, uh, we've been getting some emails here about the recent Outside Magazine article titled, How Far Fitness Has Fallen. And the scientists were giving some juicy quotes about how pathetic the modern human is in comparison to our primal ancestors. Yeah, that was an interesting article uh, drawn from a study done that looked at bone density um, and from that, extrapolated about uh, strength and mobility in our ancestors and looked at different uh, cultures, including hunter-gatherer uh, cultures from 10,000 or more years ago up through uh, early agriculturists, up through more recent agricultural societies and right into present time. And it looked at um, – as far as I could tell, it really just mostly looked at bone density and, and again, extrapolated from there. Uh, the sort of take-home message was that our remote ancestors were wickedly fit, and particularly the hunter-gatherers. And I guess you, you, could, you could probably conclude that you know, almost intuitively that somebody who had to endure the rigors of a harsh environment, who had to hunt and gather and lug and build and climb and fight uh, in order to survive had to be exceptionally strong. So I like, I like where that was headed. Uh, and then – the, it, it, even in the times of early agriculture, there was a lot of work done in the fields and moving rocks and cutting trees and uprooting stuff and and baling things. Uh, so you can, again, kind of infer from that that those ancestors had to be probably stronger than the typical person today. But the idea that everyone from 10 or 20,000 years ago was stronger than anyone today is a little bit far-fetched. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering if those guys really could outrun Usain Bolt in 100. Or Meb uh, Kofleski in the Boston Marathon, who at the age of 40 just ran a two-hour and eight-minute performance. Um, and, and Dr. Shaw, Dr. Colin Shaw of Cambridge University's Phenotypic Adaptability Variation and Evolution Research Group said in the paper that was published in the Journal of Human Evolution, quote, even our most highly trained athletes pale in comparison to these ancestors of ours, and that hunter-gatherers from uh, time period 30,000 to 150,000 years ago were, quote, much stronger than the long-distance runners of today. I find that absolutely preposterous. Yeah, again, we won't know because we can't go back in time. 
But even if you look at some of the um, persistence hunting studies and the hunter-gatherers, you know, current hunters of today, uh, the Kung Bushmen, for instance, and you and you watch the nature of a persistence hunt. You know, it's a pretty grueling uh, event, but it takes place over hours and hours. And there's when you when you parse it into, you know, minutes per per kilometer that they're running or minutes per mile, it's really not that impressive. Uh, it's not certainly fast. It's not as good as as any top elite marathoner would run today, uh, given the the amount of training that uh, is allowed by the type of access, just access to food. The amount of calories that that the modern day endurance athlete has as a luxury to be able to refill glycogen stores and go out and train hard every single day, which is what I did in my marathon days, uh, was not available to the early hunter gatherer. So I'm I, I do think it's preposterous that a statement like that could be made that that uh, even our most elite athletes uh, would pale in comparison to uh, to the early hunter gatherers in their uh, in, in that particularly in that in that specific endeavor, maybe in terms of overall strength, you could you could argue that if they showed up at uh, at some strongman competition and if you took all all of the different uh, um, events on balance, the hunter gatherer would have done pretty well. But not in one particular event. I don't see them, you know, I don't see them uh, du- dunking over KD or um, <laughs> you know or or. Uh, or outlifting a guy like Paul Anderson, who was the strongest man in the world in the in the 60s, and you know they're just it 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 it's kind of weird to make that kind of blanket statement based on um, bone density studies. Right. I think the the main takeaway point is when they talk about the average and today's average Joe, and I have observed this from working in uh, kids fitness for a long time. And observing where you put out a distance race, we, we go to schools and, and put on um, long distance races and time the kids. And today's average kid, I'd be willing to bet, is way inferior to 20 years ago or 40 years ago in terms of just general fitness ability because of our high-tech modern life. Well, uh, high-tech modern life, um, a decrease in, in nutrition in the food because of processed food, um, the, the ridiculous absence of PE classes in a lot of schools for funding reasons and all of these things you know combine to create a sedentary society i'm sure that you shared shared this experience when i was in school there was the one kid in school who was the fat kid you know and now there are a lot of kids in school who are fat it was anomalies in in the 50s and 60s to have uh, a a severely overweight kid and usually it was you know a true bariatric metabolic issue that the kid was facing. Um, and today it's, it's kind of the norm to be overweight and it's the norm to be sedentary and playing video games and out of shape. So, you know, back to that study, just the observation, uh, in general that, uh, hunter gatherers were more fit than the average person today is clearly true, but to take it out to the, to the, um, uh, to the to the outliers and say that uh, you know the most elite of our athletes today would have paled in comparison. I just think that's that's sort of an abuse of the science, if you ask me. Well, they got their headline attention then, just like uh, you know um, people that say crazy stuff. Uh, let's assume that our listeners are uh, we can all shake our heads in disgust at today's average uh, decline. 
But if you're interested in fitness and peak performance, we can maybe transition along to uh, the interesting happenings with Dr. Timothy Noakes down at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. And this guy, for many years, has, has been considered the preeminent exercise physiologist in the world. His book called Lore of Running, which is an 800-page masterpiece, has been lauded as you know the definitive uh, guide to... Uh, fitness and peak performance, especially endurance running. And he reached out to you recently to your great surprise and satisfaction. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, I was actually in South Africa and tried to look him up. Uh, he was on vacation. It was an Easter break down there. But uh, when I got home, got a very nice email uh, in which he um, sort of acknowledged having read some of my stuff. And uh, I, you know, it was a kind of a mutual admiration society there because I'd used the lore of running as as my go to source for the first 20 years of my coaching and my writing about um, endurance training and particularly the whole uh, concept of, of um, substrate utilization, particularly carbohydrates and glycogen and glucose uh, and fat burning and running. And uh, it turns out that he had uh, in the last five or six years had, had um, kind of diametrically changed his position from one of, of uh, a, you know, a, a sugar burning – a carbohydrate-centric endurance guy who was figuring out ways to uh, best conserve glycogen for the um, t- to maximize performance into one who was uh, thinking more in terms of how do we best utilize fat and how do we certainly minimize the uh, necessity to, to continue to use glucose, not just for the muscles but for the brains in an endurance contest and and for because it because that, and that sort of drew back on his central governor theory, which suggests that it's ultimately the brain that causes us to shut down uh, in an endurance contest. It's, in, it's the brain that, that requests that we hit the wall um, and slow down and maybe go take a nap, uh, which I, th- I found interesting. That was uh, one of the former winners of the um, Ironman triathlon in Hawaii. Uh, one year he dropped out, and he dropped out. The reason he dropped out was because he, 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 f- he said he felt like taking a nap. And that's the brain. That's the central governor of the brain, which is suggesting that with all of this monitoring going on during an endurance contest, once you start to run low on um, – oh, hang on, Brad. I forgot to unplug my phone. Once you run low on carbohydrate and particularly uh, you know, the, the muscle glycogen, um, that's the point at which you hit the wall. You can theoretically dig deeper and you can uh, – you know, start to do some. You can you can complete the event, but not without some amount of of muscular damage or harm. And that's where the brain kind of overrides that and says, "Look, we got to slow down. We got to stop. We got to we got to do it. Whatever." So um, I'm rambling on there, but basically, uh, it was really interesting that that Noakes would would after a lifetime of creating and defending a position that looked at carbohydrates as the essential. Uh, uh, factor in endurance training and racing would then shift away from that and look at fat as being uh, so so necessarily predominant. Yeah, and admittedly, he has taken a ton of heat from his colleagues because he actually, all the people in exercise physiology have had to reflect and actually recalibrate their life's work uh, that, that is predicated on, um, in, in the exercise realm and endurance, it's that muscles run on carbohydrates and then a high-carbohydrate diet frames the entire protocol for how to train for endurance sports. And uh, Noakes himself and his sister, too, uh, who both got into the, the primal eating, 
uh, had experienced great uh, body fat loss, which was a challenge for a while, and in- enhanced performance. So he's turning heads slowly but surely with great resistance in that pretty uh, uh, traditional field of exercise physiology and endurance performance. Well, as so often happens uh, with people who are in this uh, low-carb world and the paleo-primal ancestral world, um, you know, Tim had a personal experience. He got diagnosed as being pre-diabetic, and his uncle and father had um, um, been diabetics, and, and, and uh, one or both of them had died at that time uh, from type 2 diabetes. So Noakes had a really um, c- compelling reason to visit this, and as he got into it and, and started to lose a weight and started to have his blood sugar normalize, started to realize, well, maybe I've been, um, you know, wrong in some of my assumptions. And what's crazy to me is that that is such a heroic move to take what amounts to a life's work and and put it through a microscope again and, and re-examine it and go, oh my goodness, I think I was wrong. And be willing to stand up and, and say, you know, I'm sorry, but I, I, I had some... Um, uh, I had some ideas that I thought were right, and now new research and new data has uh, indicated that perhaps I was wrong. I'm willing to, to rethink my position. Um, I'm going to take a new stance based on new data. Uh, he did that, and as you said, he's caught a lot of flag for it. And it's just it's um, it's it's un- really it's really unfortunate because I think that's the kind of guy who you would believe more than just about anybody else. Somebody who who had such an investment in that position initially and was willing to reconsider and and uh, take a almost opposite stance just based on new information. Right. That's why he's a top guy, being open-minded and willing to look at uh, the, the big picture rather than being stuck in a uh, dogmatic position. Uh, but back to this central governor theory, and if you listeners are interested, you can Google that and pull up all kinds of interesting things. Um, it, it really is mind-blowing because we've held for so long uh, a theory that you might call the peripheral theory. In other words, that human performance is limited by the actual fatiguing of your chest muscles on that final bench press rep or that your legs actually feel tired and heavy in the final miles of the marathon. Uh, But when you uh, realize what this can all encompass, and a quick example is, you know, you're doing your bench press by yourself in a quiet gym and you can can do 12 and then you're really tired and and you fail and you hang the the weight up. But if you had 20 people around you cheering at the, uh, the CrossFit group workout or at the NFL Combine, you're very likely going to break through a prior performance level just because of the uh, 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 the psychological extra stimulation. There's so much in high level uh, and peak performance that revolves around tapping into that ability to override the the central governor, and I don't mean to, to suggest that that that's all that it takes. But when you look at um, world-class performances. For the longest time, people thought that the four-minute mile could not be broken. Um, and then uh, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile uh, in 50 54. Four. And uh, within a year, I think six people had run a four-minute mile. It was basically Bannister's doing it that sort of freed everybody else's brain to suggest that it's not going to kill me to run sub-four. Uh, that it's humanly possible, and that I'm well trained enough to be able to do that. So it 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 invokes an entire discussion on 
how important the mental game is in athletics in general and endurance competition specifically. And we go back to uh, a friend of yours and mine, the grip, you know, Mark Allen, who was notorious for his ability to tap into that, that, um, that mental state that could override the pain uh, that could that could I mean another example would be Prefontaine who basically said um, I I know I may not be as fit as the next guy I'm running against but I know I'm I'm mentally stronger and I know I'm willing to hurt more and that's how Prefontaine won a lot of his races by yeah. being able to override that yeah yeah uh, Tim Noakes says that at uh, when when you look at the end of a close race at, at a high level race. Um, the physical ability is so similar and the intensive training that all the athletes have performed is so similar, but he claims that it's the brains inside these athletes that determine the finisher's positions. And so the winner is just a more resilient uh, mental creature who is dead set on winning. And speaking of our old, our old pals, um, I think Simon Whitfield showed this in the 2000 Olympics in Sydney really dramatically where he came from behind at the very, very end of the race and was just sprinting full sprint uh, to the line and caught this guy who had been waving to the crowd for the previous two, 300 meters, thinking that he was at least going to win. But after when they interviewed everybody, um, the, the silver medalist said, I was just so happy to be in the medals that it was you know a dream of my lifetime. I just wanted to win an Olympic medal. And then when they talked to Simon, he said that all he thought about was going for the gold and putting everything on the line until until the point of death practically and he was able to you know make up this huge deficit off an incredibly talented athlete who was ahead of him to win the gold because that's where his brain was at at that time um very good example of of how many of these olympic stories play out uh, it really comes down to who wants it more uh you know and i could you can apply this to just about any athletic endeavor every week i play ultimate frisbee and i swear to god every time we pick teams it whoever wins that day it was the team who wanted it more and you can see it halfway into a game you can see who's which team is sort of on point and and working as a unit and which team isn't and it's it's quite interesting you can watch it in the basketball playoffs uh which are going on right now i mean it's interesting that it doesn't just apply to the individual uh, and, and endurance events, but it can apply to almost all sporting events. Yeah, and let's take a few steps back in, in case you're a listener who's not a super competitive athlete and you're just trying to get through your routine and be healthy and perhaps have some modest fitness goals like drop a few pounds or whatever. Um, this stuff still comes into play pretty heavily, and I think it's evident by just considering an idea like waking up one day and not feeling that much like working out, just feeling a little tired and dragging. And that little sensation, which we maybe discount more than we should, that's, that's really everything is, is mindset and motivation will lead the body to, to the promised land, so to speak. Yeah, so there's a couple ways to look at that, one of which is if you're not motivated that day, maybe you're overtrained. Maybe it's appropriate that you don't go work out. Maybe there's not enough at stake for you because you're not training for a competition. Um, I certainly <laughs> sort of uh, I, I allocate myself to really hard workouts a week, and I better be prepared for those. And when I am, and when I've when I've got them scheduled, and I wake up feeling fit and ready, uh, then I'm able to motivate my brain to get me through those workouts and to dig really deep and to and to benefit from those workouts. 
And if you're following a primal blueprint type training and eating strategy, you also know that you really don't need to do more than two hard workouts a week. And the rest of it can be fun or easier or filler or, or a day off um, because you really – if you're looking to <clears throat> improve in your performance, it's a, a long-term strategy that isn't so much dependent on getting, it, getting something done every day as it is depending on getting something kind of um, uh, over the top done once or twice a week. And over time, you improve because of those what I used to call breakthrough workouts. And everything else is just kind of filler and rest and recovery in between. Now, you can do that. You can go to the gym and you can, you can do your workouts. Um, but you know, just make sure that you're rested and prepared. Um, and if you're not having a good day, be, be okay with taking it really easy. Um, if you're tired or sore, uh, maybe even taking that day off. But that's 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 kind of how you tap into this uh, ability of your brain to recognize when it's time to go hard and really dig deep, and when it's time to back off and say, you know what, it's, there's nothing at stake if I take if I take the day off. Okay, well here's a wild question for you, Mark. What if we went back into the, examined the primal blueprint principles, went back into the hunter-gatherer studies and their bone density, and all of a sudden it came out to be that, hey, guess what? You should do four hard workouts a week. Do you think that your brain and your body would follow along if that became the norm and the conventions for effective fitness training? Well, it depends on where you're going with that. Um, You know, if you if you look at a hunter-gatherer, a true hunter-gatherer paradigm, they didn't, they didn't think about get, getting up every day and what am I going to do for my workout. That, the concept of workout never existed. This was life. This was what do I need to do to survive day to day. And part of what it takes to survive is conserving energy. So as often as a hunter-gatherer could hang out and do nothing, I suspect that's what he or she chose to do. As, as often as a hunter-gatherer could say, you know what, I've got enough food to last me through tomorrow. Um, there's no sense in trying to, to hunt for food for next week because it won't last that long. I don't have refrigeration. Um, I haven't, you know, I, I may or may not have learned how to cure whatever it is I'm killing. So I'm, I'm living on a day-to-day basis. If I have enough food for today, my work is done, I'll take the day off. So I don't think that there was any kind of a, uh, intention on, on hard work necessarily every single day. However, when, when it was time to work hard, whether it was to chase something down and throw a spear or you know, build a new shelter or, uh, or travel across uh, vast expanses of, of ground to the next fertile hunting grounds, they certainly chose to do that. Um, you know, and, and I guess, I don't know, what's the, you know, what's the takeaway from that uh, in, a, in the context of somebody who's once again trying to achieve peak performance today um, it's a different paradigm because we have we have food that lasts a long time, so we can literally uh, afford the luxury of expending all kinds of calories and energy in a workout that has no survival benefit. It's just done because we're trying to, uh, you know, cut a new notch in our belt or get something off our bucket list by by entering a 10k. So there's nothing really at stake. It's just we're choosing intellectually to undergo this this training because we think it's fun or because we think it's going to build self confidence uh, or self esteem. Um, but it doesn't. We can't really look at it in the context of a hunter gatherer, other than to re- recognize that that hunter gatherers probably didn't quote unquote train that much 
um, the way a lion is really, really strong today, and they sleep most of the day. But when they're out exercising, they're they're exercising pretty hard. Yeah, it's it's possible that the the, the takeaway point we we've talked about this central governor theory and how it can literally mean mind over matter. So perhaps we all know deep down that we can always summon the motivation and the athletic performance to get through a challenging workout, or in the case of our ancestors, a life or death matter. Of course, they're going to get up off their up their out of nap time and run away from the predator. However. Today, we need to interject that, uh, that element of balance so that we make sensible decisions and don't overtrain and don't get into the chronic pattern that we've discussed at length. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, I, just sort of as a aside to this, I looked at some uh, race results from the um, late 70s, uh, a marathon that I was in up in um, Oregon, the Nike OTC Marathon. It was really interesting because there were – I don't know how many people – it was a club race basically. It was invitation only. There was a club race. Uh, there were uh, 600 people ran the race I think. But there were a couple of hundred that broke three hours. And you know that's a seven-minute mile basically. That's 6.57 I think is to run a three-minute – or to th- a three-hour marathon. And I look at some of the major races today, the, the, the LA Marathon, um, Boston, New York, and there aren't that many people breaking three hours. Uh, and I wonder whether it's whether it is a mental thing, whether this ability to run long distance uh, as a recreational citizen athlete uh, has has shifted somewhat with society over the past several decades. So that in the 70s and early 80s, when the running boom was was big, and the mantra sort of went out, well, if you want to call yourself a marathoner, you have to run sub sub three hours. If you want to call yourself a runner. Um, you, you, you know, everyone else was a sort of, a, was a jogger and not to use the term disparagingly, but that was sort of the metric was guys had to run sub three girls had to run, uh, three thirty, And that was what it took to, to consider yourself a, a runner almost the way, like you can't even talk about being a bench presser unless you can do 300 pounds, for instance. Uh, and something shifted in the last couple of decades. And because it, it's the, the brain suddenly saying, well, you know, I could probably get to a seven-minute mile, but I'll run 730s, I'll run eights, and there's no, there's nothing at stake, uh, so I don't know where my limit is, so I'm going to artificially set my limit at a 345 marathon or a 350 marathon or whatever. And again, not that it's good or bad because you know how I feel about um, pursuing uh, chronic cardio and endurance events in general. Um, but just sort of an observation about how this mind over matter, how this central governor theory might work in in all of society uh, two decades later or three decades later as a result of just, uh, you know, what, what's gone on in the world. Right, right. I mean, it, it lends itself to um, all kinds of examples, such as in the Framingham study, the famous study of uh, – residents of Framingham, Massachusetts, all matters of health and disease risk, um, they identified pockets of obesity in such that a cultural group, like friends or neighbors or people that they hung out with, uh, they had these clusters of obese people 
possibly because of the cultural influences. And similarly, there's uh, examples of fit groups of people or people that um, you hang out with and nurture your interest in being healthy and fit. So there's, it, it goes a lot beyond just how strong your muscles are and, and, and the literal uh, limiters of peak performance into even cultural matters that can affect your health and longevity and fitness. I think the take-home message here is that uh, there's so much available to us if we just can, you know, can kind of tap into that part of the brain that, on the one hand, recognizes um, when we're uh, overtired, overtrained, fatigued, unrested, um, you know, poorly hydrated, or whatever, but also takes advantage of those times when we are ready to go and allows us to maybe get to the next level in a workout or to um, you know, to, to tap uh, into that system that, as, as uh, we used to say in the triathlon days, you know, go to the well one more time and get that breakthrough workout in that'll take us to the next level. Right. That was a great summary, and I think we've had an interesting chat here. We'll probably uh, uh, move on to some other fun discussions for next week, but that's a great show for today. So listeners, I know we've encouraged you to send in your questions and we're going to hit another question and answer session uh, shortly in the future. Uh, But you can also throw out uh, topics of discussion if you want, general topics that you'd like to hear us cover. Uh, for, For today, for this week, thank you so much for listening to the Primal Blueprint Podcast with Mark Sisson. 